Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. I'm Joanna Lumley, and joining me here in our wonderful music room at the end of our garden is the maestro Stephen Barlow, my husband. We've always adored this space, haven't we, Stevie? Yeah. I suppose it's something which no budding musician, maestro or composer should ever take for granted. It's a difficulty for every musician finding somewhere where you can practice without too much interruption and also not too much interruption for your neighbours. It's not commonly known, really, how, how hard it is for a singer, for example. You cannot practice late at night unless you're in a soundproof studio, and, you, and nobody has that. So all musicians have to have some dedicated space. It's, it's hard for young musicians in particular when you start out. Um, I thought that we could quite casually step into something that almost caused a rift in our marriage. No. Which was, yes. Which was that we each have a hero, and my hero is Beethoven, and yours is... No, Beethoven's a hero of mine, too. Come on, yours is... Let's put this another way. Just yours is... Come on, Mozart. Just... OK, admit it. You've admitted it. Let's put it another way. That you... I think you brought this on, because I know that, of all composers, you really do believe that Beethoven is one you could least do without... And you feel some connection with him, with bits of his character and his his music. And I absolutely agree that Beethoven is one of the very greatest of all composers. But the one I could least do without is Mozart. Okay, and so there we are. Let's just put this chronologically. Mozart came first, didn't he? Yeah. So who did he follow on from? Well, Mozart was born when Haydn was 23. Yeah. So Mozart's hero was Haydn. Yeah. And then Mozart was a bit of a child prodigy when Beethoven was born. Yeah. So Beethoven came third. But we talk about Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven as the, the three greatest classical composers. We call that the classical period because it followed on from the Baroque period, which was full of ornamentation and contrapuntalism, which is lots of academic lines working against each other and innards and innards and ornamentation flourishes. So let's take, for example, Bach's little fugue in G minor for the organ. The point about a fugue is uh, very, very simple. First, a single theme is played and then a second voice takes that theme while the first voice embellishes it. And then, of course, you can add a third voice, which will play the same initial theme, while the other two voices will then embellish further. And fugue is from the Latin word for flight. 
and we hear these flights of embellishment almost. Stevie, who is it who popularised Baroque music? Well, Handel and Bach were the yeah. kings of Baroque and Vivaldi. Lots of people say Bach is the big man, the beginner, no, no, the most don't, important. Don't start, don't no, start. Okay, okay. You, it, just it, wanted to <laughs> doff my hat Handel is my man over Bach, if you have to only have one. Okay, but I'm going to steer us back to Mozart. <laughs> So Mozart was born... In, the, in 1756. Died... 1791. Beethoven was born... 1770. 70, and died... 1827. Much older than Mozart. He would have known Mozart's music, of oh, course. Absolutely. In fact, the, the only way they could get to know each other's music was by going to performances or maybe being able to see a score. Everybody forgets this because there were no recordings, of course. So you had to have sight of a score, mm. which took some doing, because they didn't publish scores. So Beethoven would have been aware of Mozart's music and would have probably seen some music and would probably have seen some performances. Did he meet him? This I don't know, but offhand I don't believe so. Haydn did see... Mozart, when he was a very young boy, because he was very precocious, and Haydn immediately fingered Mozart as someone who was going to be utterly exceptional. And there's no question at all that Mozart would have known of the whippersnapper Ludwig van Beethoven coming up. He would have known that he was exceptional too. They all would have recognised each other's talents. And they were all accomplished museum, museum, <laughs> musicians, <laughs> even when they were tiny, but when they were young, young boys, even Beethoven, not quite as a prodigy as, as Mozart, but he was... No, you, well, that's, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. But we can't forget that, that from the very beginnings of cultural history, really, artists and musicians were all extremely able and skilled and well-developed by their early teens. I mean, in the, in the 17th and 16th century, musicians were holding down very serious jobs before they left their teens. But Mozart is the exception here in that his father was a musician and he pushed Wolfgang a huge amount. And it's really evident that he, he was obsessed with pushing Wolfgang into early development and fame. So he pushed him forward. He was always being forced to play to, to people and aristocrats. And he was brought over to London to play, didn't he? Yes, absolutely, There's as a, a child in, wonder. In Pimlico, which has is, which is got a little thing saying Mozart, Mozart, stayed, Mozart here. stayed here. He was writing operas by the age of 9, 10, 11. And in his enormous output of 660-plus works that exist, that's an awful lot of works to compose. That was all in 36 years. Um, we've seen that there's a marvellous film, which I'm sure lots of people have seen, Amadeus, and that came from Peter Schaffer's stage play about Mozart. And it paints, I think, a very agreeable, well, a, an accessible picture of what it, what to be a young genius was like, which was, it, it's got him scribbling music and behaving badly, and he just was a chirpy sort of, not loutish, but he had sort of, you know, rich language and loved the girls. And he was just a kind of young, spirited boy. So his father didn't kill his spirit, did he? 
by making but you he, go around but and he, um, play. An awful lot of correspondence is available between Mozart and his elder sister and his father, and his father to Wolfgang continuously telling him what to do, to knuckle down and do this and do that. But it's exaggerated. The business of Mozart being unruly and swearing a lot and toilet humour and all of this, it did exist. But his principal problem was that he didn't accept authority very easily. So he had famously bad relations in Salzburg with his patron there, um, Colorado. And he really didn't conform very much. And it was a jolly close thing, really, that he wasn't thrown out of everywhere because he didn't accept authority very readily. But that is so far removed from every note of music he wrote, which is in another world. But I'm talking about Mozart. and (laughs) Yes, you are. uh, Look, uh, and I adore Mozart. But the truth is, it seems it came straight from God without touching the sides of Mozart. He didn't seem to struggle a lot when he wrote. No, he didn't. He he famously wrote while he was in coach journeys over the Alps to Italy on on one, one trip. He would just cover pages. And the big difference between him and Beethoven is that he rarely made a mistake. So it just flowed. Now, this is kind of genius to me in that he didn't seem to struggle. But it didn't come from nowhere because he obviously was a sponge. So everything he heard, he took in and understood. He saw, he perceived things from hearing music that others couldn't necessarily analyze so well. So the difference between Mozart and Salieri, for example, who was his senior and obviously knew how exceptional Wolfgang was, the difference is that in one page of Mozart, you can see invention, whereas with Salieri, it is just putting notes in a different order. He can switch so easily from tragedy to comedy. He loved comedy, didn't he? He was incredibly socially aware so he, he observed society in all his operas. You can see someone who was being really revolutionary, and one should never forget that The Marriage of Figaro, while, while we now can go and see it and enjoy some great music and a, 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 and a great story where good triumphs over bad, the Count is humiliated, you know, at the end. We, we can see it like that, but at the time it was highly dangerous. In The Marriage of Figaro, you see the wives winning over their husbands and basically managing the plot. They are the ones who manufacture the end result. Yes, like in Solaria, um, in this duet... Countess Almaviva dictates to Susanna the invitation to a tryst, and it's addressed to the Countess's husband in a plot to expose his infidelity. But Mozart had a habit of selecting plots that were socially always interesting, like Cosi fan tutte, which incidentally, your man, Beethoven, he accused Mozart of immorality because he said it's immoral because the whole story was about a bet 
between three men, two lovers and an older man. And the older man said, I bet you, your women will be unfaithful. And so they manufactured the story of the lovers going off to war, but they came back in disguise and then wooed the other sister. This is very Shakespearean, you know. If you think of the Merchant of Venice when Portia decides to dress up as a lawyer and goes with Nerissa, her, her maidservant, who also dresses as a boy, and they fool their lovers into thinking they are men and, and trick them. And they must have known about Shakespeare. It, yes, but the difference was that nearly all of Mozart's operas were to be performed in the presence of the emperor or the highest aristocracy. So it was not the People's Theatre of Southwark. No. So Mozart was always very canny about that. And it's interesting that your man and my man, incidentally, <laughs> Beethoven, Beethoven, struggled with the entire concept of opera. He only really wrote one, didn't he? Yes, and Which it was caused Fidelia. him a lot of trouble. Well, poor old Beethoven you, had so little confidence about the form of opera, which was seen to be socially uh, radical, Certainly in Mozart's hands. He was quite a godly man, Beethoven, wasn't he? Yes. Actually, all the composers had kind of God in them. That was because the church was quite often a commissioner of their music, a patron of their music. Yes. And the history of classical music sort of was held in the palm of the church to a certain extent. I think Beethoven was in awe of God and principle and morality. Mm whereas Mozart was much more the free-thinking artist who also believed in God, and a lot of his religious music is some of the finest you can find. But when you compare some of Mozart's masses and the mass in C minor with Beethoven's mass in D, Missa Solemnis, the difference is, is enormous. Beethoven's piece is all about awe and worship and mystery. whereas Mozart's are much more muscular. Why does Beethoven chime with you, do I you think? Know. Is it particular music? Well, I think that pr probably hearing it when I was very young um, and knowing sort of note for note the Pastoral Symphony, which is all we had on our wind-up record, records, either in Hong Kong or in Malaya, Malaysia as it is now, winding them up and putting them on side after side after side after side and getting to know them so well. And remember, we didn't have any other music. There was no radio station. I mean, you could tune into something late at night, but we were out of kilter with the world. And uh, so you had, that that was your music. And I just felt in a funny way from quite early on that I had, <laughs> that I had written some of it. It seemed so normal to me. And so when people have said Beethoven's uh, it's quite a difficult piece, and you think, but I, it was like mother's milk to me. I, I sort of seemed to understand it. And I also rather like something you said once, which, which was that, that it seemed to be 
hewn out of rock. The idea that he simply chipped away at an enormous rock that was already there. And revealed. And revealed yes. something in the... Um, and certainly his compositional process is much more of a struggle than Mozart's. Yes. In that Mozart's, you rarely see a mistake. But in Beethoven's fact, all scratched and crossed. Scratched and, and changed and... and ripped. And and paper was not cheap then, if you think about it, and ink. So he would write little things in little bits of spare manuscript paper. He really, really, really worked hard at achieving his end result. Whereas Mozart seems not to have struggled at all. Just to remind you, if you want to get in touch with us on the programme, do email hello at joannaandthemaestro.com and we'd love to hear from you. We really would. We're fed up with the sound of our own voices and we just want to hear your sweet voices. Well, obviously, I'll be reading them out, so it'll be my voice again. But all the problems and ideas and compliments and questions you have, I shall put to the maestro himself, maestro Stephen Barlow. Like Mozart, it seems that Beethoven also had a fairly sort of cavalier attitude to authority and was quite insolent to people who everywhere, oh, he shouldn't have said that to her, or he didn't do that, or he didn't take his, off his hat to somebody, or he didn't... He was He quite, was brusque. Yeah. He was... Was that to do with deafness, do you think? Or no, 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 deafness? not until later. But deafness creeps up on you. Yes, but in his later years, the poor man really was very deaf to the extent that he writes for voices sometimes in a way that would seem to suggest that he hadn't heard really the quality of voices singing so high. So his Ninth Symphony, is the sopranos are hugely high, and he begins to use voices like instruments that late on for the Ninth Symphony. So he, he got much more demanding and more inner about his music. And it's clear, too, that he had trouble hearing because he regularly broke pianos. And I think that's most likely because he was playing so hard, trying to extract things out of instruments when when he couldn't really hear. When I first went to Vienna, Stevie, I said to the taxi driver, could you take me to see Beethoven's home? And he just laughed and he said he moved 58 times. He was moved on because people just said, I can't bear that banging away. Get rid of him. And he was moved on, moved on, moved on. Because by this time he couldn't hear. He couldn't hear. He He had to sometimes put his ear to an instrument. And didn't he conduct something and didn't know... Yes, what was famously. That? I can't remember what that piece was. But he was conducting one of his own pieces. And he couldn't hear that it was all going wrong and um, he, he couldn't hear what they were playing. But the real point about it is that he had a, a really stern conviction that it was his mission to carve out these extraordinary works. He was single-minded in virtually everything. There was no debating with Beethoven. He didn't marry, and it's quite easy, if you think around his life, to see how he couldn't possibly have lived with anybody. They wouldn't have been able to tolerate the, the, the seriousness, the earnestness, the hardness that he had in his daily life. It's a heartbreaking story, really. What I love about our two heroes is that 
They write the most sublime music I think ever made, and it can be as rich and as complicated and as unexpected, but they also have this ability to write things which are almost nursery rhymes, and two of them I would select, one from Mozart, from The Marriage of Fregro, I think it is, Voike Sapete, which is just so simple, and then it's ornamented, because I've always thought of Mozart as a as a snowflake, perfect, perfect crystal, six-sided, never repeated, but always within that framework. And Voikersbeta seems to be that. That's Cherubino's aria. Yeah. From The Marriage of Figaro. And he's supposed to be... Um, he's a boy. He, he's a young boy, maybe around 15. He's a page boy. And just beginning to fall in love with women, he can't really pass a woman without having a, a flutter of teenage testosterone. And what Mozart's written for him is an extraordinarily exuberant display, but very elegant. And it's Susanna who kind of looks after him. She's the maid, isn't she? And she picks up a guitar and it is supposed to accompany him. So what you have is a, the, the simplest of all possible accompaniments, arpeggios. To this heavenly tune. Voike Sapete means you who know about these things. Who is he singing it to? Well, he's... To Susanna or to women in general? To women in general, to all women. So that's a really good example of Mozart's ability to write something incredibly simple, incredibly right for the dramatic situation, but at the same time showing the emotion without the element of romanticism, which is to invest the notes with genuine feeling. So what you have is abstract music that somehow conveys this without going overboard into emotionalism. Now, Beethoven, this is the key, was on the cusp of the romantic movement. So Beethoven began to write notes on the piano and for the violin in his violin concerto that no other composer had, had ever thought to use. So he uses the piano at the very top. Don't forget the piano was developing as well. So he was developing instruments to their utmost at the same time as breathing narrative and programmatic effect. So when he writes the storm in the Pastoral Symphony, it's a storm. It's, it, it's a depiction of quietness, then rain drops, then... Um, Thunderclaps and then everything. Then wind and, and a full-blown storm, which eventually blows over. His only opera, Fidelio, there's the most beautiful quartet about four people singing about love. And the story of Fidelio is, again, somebody dressing up as a man to go and rescue her husband from a prison. 
and somebody's, you know, all people unsuitably falling in love because somebody falls in love with her, thinking she's a boy, and, you know, so it goes on round. And the quartet, is it in Act Two? No, Act One. Act One, oh, sorry. <laughs> so you just get a slap on the side of the head occasionally. Okay, but that's fine. Okay, in Act One, I just wanted to say the quartet, which is four people singing at the same time about love, is one of the most enchanting, but it's almost nursery rhyme simplicity. What Beethoven was doing then was following on from something that Mozart had done. Beethoven took a lot of inspiration from Mozart. And there's a very good story that I, I, I constantly bang on about, a very particular copy, but going further with it. What he does, he has four characters all stepping into their own spotlight and singing their own thoughts at the same time. And each voice follows the other. And then it builds up into all four voices blending together. It's pure magic. Never ever doubt Beethoven's sympathy with people with whom he couldn't relate very well, because he tells the story of those each individual four characters with such sympathy and so simply. And yet capable of well, when you hear the the final movement of, of I would imagine one of his most famous, the ninth, the very end of that, which is played with the Ode to Joy, which I think Schiller wrote. He set Schiller's verse, you know, Freude, schöne Götterfunken, joy, beautiful, God-given gift, talked out for daughter of Elysium, talked out Elysium, and this high flown and the majesty and the sound and the depth of that. Then you go right back to things like Furelise. I mean, Beethoven, his head was just crammed. I know they all are, and Mozart too. The scale of stuff. Mm. And then it can just come down to one instrument. I think Beethoven also got closest to the sublime because some of his melodies in the piano concertos, the slow movements, time literally stops. And when you take the melody out and sing the melody, it's appallingly simple. One's surprised how simple the melodies are. And yet in context, it's almost like going into a cathedral and bending the knee. Do you know one of my favorite bits, because I love Beethoven and I've loved the Eroica my whole life, but my favorite movement is this maestro. It's the third movement of the Ninth Symphony. It's just sublime. It never seems to 
have achieved, it never stops. It's like a great cornfield. Well, it does. It has, it has a form, which yes. is, um, you know, <clears throat> A, B, A, B, A. You know, so it, it comes back to where it was before. And it does have a form, but it feels as if it is an endless flow, an endless flow. To somebody who's never heard any Mozart, you know, you stretch your eyes, but this could be the case. What piece would you choose to play well, I would suggest two. Laudate Dominum from the Vespers, which is just sublime in terms of melody, but also sublime in terms of imagination. Because, of course, Laudate Dominum is normally set very loud and joyful. But this is quiet and contemplative, and it's ineffable. That means let's praise the Lord or praise the Lord. Yes. Yeah. But it's uh, written as the most extraordinarily beautiful soprano solo with chorus in the background. And the other would be the last movement of his final symphony, the Jupiter Symphony, number 41. It's got such energy in it, but it also is a double fugue. Now, don't let's start talking about fugue at the moment. But it was a Baroque form, fugues. And the classical movement specifically moved away from overwrought structures like Baroque fugues, which was an academic ex exercise, pretty much, except in the hands of Bach. So to make the final movement of a symphony a double fugue, while at the same time sounding as if he was running down a hill yelling, woohoo, um, <laughs> is, is the most extraordinary demonstration of, of skill and spirit. Well, now, I don't have to change your mind about Beethoven and you don't have to change my mind about Mozart because we both adore them, we adore them. And I can hear tapping on the windows and with slightly mournful expressions, all the other great composers who've said, look, you seem to have just left us out in the cold altogether. And we're not doing that. It's just that these two major people are there. Um, I think I'm going to listen harder to Mozart, maestro, but when I'm lowered into the earth, when I'm buried, instead of Dido's Lament by Purcell, when I am laid in earth, I'd like to hear Beethoven's Emperor Concerto, number five. It was Beethoven's last piano concerto, which he wrote after the bombardment of Vienna. And this piece alone sums up the sublime nature of his work for me. I, I can't think of an, anything better. Well, it would be a very, very slow chosen. funeral. I might have time to wake up and get out again. You, but you'll, you'll have to allow me to... <laughs> <laughs> to give Beethoven a chance by, um, in coming years, really wrestle with the late string quartets and the late piano sonatas, which I still find I, I can't quite get to grips with. They are so modern and so unusual 
So my view is that I need I need more time with Beethoven, whereas with Mozart, I feel that if Mozart's music was flowing through my veins, I'd be very happy. Be happy, maestro. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening to this marital struggle between Mozart and Beethoven, where you can have your Mozart and eat your Beethoven. And I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you'll come back next week, because we'll be here, sure as anything. In this episode, you've heard the following music. Bach's Little Fugue in G minor, performed by Virgil Fox on the Royal Albert Hall organ, and the record company was the Reader's Digest Association, Inc. Mozart's La Nozze di Figaro, K492, Solaria. Performed by Line Fortin, Orchestra Metropolitan de Grand Montreal, and conducted by Joseph Rechigno, and the record company was Analecta. Mozart's Cosi Fan Tutte, K588, Suave Sia il Vento, performed by René Fleming, Anne-Sophie von Otter, Michel Pertusi, and the Chamber Orchestra of Europe, and conducted by Sir George Salty. And the record company was Decca Music Group Limited. Beethoven's Mass in D, Opus 123, Missa Solemnis, performed by Gundela Janowitz, Christina Ludwig, Fritz Wunderlich, Walter Berry, Berlin Philharmonic, Joseph Nebois, Michael Schwalbe, Venus Singveren, Reinhold Schmidt, and Herbert von Karajan. And the record company was Deutsche Grammophon Berlin. Mozart's Mass in C minor, K427, Grosse Messe, performed by Gabrielli and Camilla Tilling, and conducted by Paul McRiche and the record company was Deutsche Grammophon Berlin. Mozart's Voice Sapete, from La Nozze di Figaro, performed by Janice Kelly and the London Metropolitan Orchestra and Barrington Fellong. Published by EMI Music Publishing, and the record company was Granada Ventures. Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 in F Major, Opus 68, Pastoral, Fourth Movement. Performed by the Tbilisi Symphony Orchestra, and Jansug and Vaktang Kakitze, and the record company was X5 Music Group. Beethoven's Fidelio, Opus 72, Act 1, Quartet, Mir ist so wunderbar, performed by Gustav Inberg, Alan Titus, Nikolaus Esterhazy Symphonia, Hungarian Radio Chorus, Kurt Moll, Hervig Pecoraro, Inga Nielsen, Edith Lehnbacher, and Michael Hallas and the record company was Naxos Digital Compilations. Beethoven's Ode to Joy, the final movement from Symphony No. 9, Opus 125, performed by André Rieu and Johann Strauss Orchestra, and the record company was Polydor Island, a division of Universal Music. Beethoven's Symphony No. 9 in D minor, Opus 125, Choral, third movement, performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Sir George Salty, and the record company was Decca Music Group Limited.
Mozart's Vespere Solenes de Confessore, K339, performed by Rachel Harnish, the Berlin Philharmonic, and Schwedische Rundfunkor, and conducted by Claudio Abado, and the record company was Deutsche Grammophon Berlin. Mozart's Symphony No. 41, Jupiter, Fourth Movement, performed by Capella Istropolitana and conducted by Barry Woodsworth, and the record company was Naxos Rights International. Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 5, Emperor, the opening of the second movement, performed by Steve Osborne, Alexander Desplat, and conducted by Terry Davis, and the record company was Cutting Edge Music Holdings Limited, under exclusive license to Decca, a division of Universal Music Operations Limited. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Puccini's Turandot, Act 3, Scene 2, Diecimila anni al nostro imperatore, performed by Malaga Philharmonic Orchestra, Giovanna Casola and Alexander Rabari, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate, K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner. Licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D Major, Opus 61, Third Movement, performed by Slovak Philharmonic Orchestra, Takako Nishizaki and Kenneth Jean. Licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. <laughs>